the Gospel of Luke. We've been there for a little while now, but over the last few weeks, we've been sort of traveling through chapters 11 and 12 as Jesus is now traveling towards Jerusalem like he turned the corner. Andy Mitchell was here when Jesus turned the corner. That's how long we've been in this little section for, back in 953. And as Jesus is heading to Jerusalem in this little section, uh, he's been taking opportunity to just address uh, and teach the crowds. And, and some of the themes and some of the thing in that is that he's been now speaking about the cost of following him and the change, the transformation that's involved that comes uh, to someone uh, who, who is going to join the new community of people that Jesus is establishing, that he is building, uh, that they would then in turn participate in the kingdom of God uh, here as much as possible on earth. And as he's been addressing uh, what we've called, and we've been looking at some of this saying, some of the issues that Jesus finds in the hearts of people are these disordered uh, love priorities, which basically result uh, from having something other than God as the affection and affirmation of your heart. The Bible calls uh, this kind of condition idolatry that sets our hearts on, on, and turns things, good things, uh, into idols. They're expressions of the human condition of sin, uh, something everybody grapples with. And we looked at Augustine last week. He's a 4th, 5th century church father, pretty much the father of theology. And he said this about disordered loves. Disordered loves motivate sin. Usually it is, uh, it is the overlove of something other than God. The pleasure or security or experience is a desire that overmasters that in which we are designed to encounter in God. So sin disorders our relational priorities. So we desire stuff more than we desire God. So we seek approval from people more than we would seek approval from God. We looked at how the fear of God is better than fearing man and, and how these disordered priorities have us uh, valuing and, and chasing possessions and valuing possessions at the expense of people and over people. It's why we build fences. It's why we nurture bitterness. We favor selfishness over selflessness. It's why we experience chaos and not peace uh, in our lives. In Luke's gospel, Jesus has come to reorder all of this, to reorder our hearts, to replace the chaos of sin with the rule of himself and the presence of the Spirit, once again warming our hearts with affection for God and his goodness and his good design for life. And Luke is writing his gospel so that we would have a confidence in this, in this, so that we can live, and we've used these language here, so we can live unashamed of our faith in God, and we can live unafraid in our faith with God when it comes to exercising that faith that we have in Jesus, doing it publicly and privately, so that our outer worlds match our inner worlds, so that we would live with the priorities of God, and nurture things like trust over fear, love over indifference, self-sacrifice over self-centeredness, and intimacy with God instead of separation. The experience of peace rather than restlessness, contentment rather than things like greed and envy that Jesus has been dialing into lately. In our passage today, though, 
Jesus has just finished addressing the crowd uh, through a parable about, around greed and things like that, teaching that life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. These objects, these things that we pursue, that we seek after, are not to be equated with true living. In fact, uh, the over-desire of them, the over-pursuit of them, they can become substitutes for the proper object of your heart, which is God. So Jesus has said, take care. Guard against this. Be on guard against the drift, against the, 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 the pull toward or the presence of uh, disordered loves and greed. And now in verses 22 to uh, 34, uh, Jesus turns now. He, he's just been talking to the crowd, and now the lads are there, and he kind of turns and he begins to speak directly to his disciples. He does this a bit. He switches from crowd and then back to disciples. And again, the conversation is around the nature of, of their hearts toward material things. We know that this conversation is connected to the last one because Jesus says, therefore. So in view of everything that's just been said, everything that's just been discussed, now you boys huddle up and listen up. The connection between the two teachings in in chapter 12 here is that security and confidence that people look for in possessions is only found in a relationship, in a living relationship with a living God. And he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, you know, sustaining your existence while you'll eat, nor about your body and what you'll put on. For life is far more than food and the body far more than clothing. Don't get over anxious about what you have kind of seems like an odd thing to tell a bunch of guys who have literally left their homes, literally left their jobs, their assets, their careers, their reputations. They've left it all behind and they've shown their relational priority toward Jesus, not to building careers, not to amassing wealth, not just thinking of themselves. But I kind of get why Jesus is turning to these guys, and maybe you do too. When Sandy and I made the decision that I would leave the building industry, that I'd fold up my bricklaying business and go into pastoral ministry, it meant a fire sale. We liquidated uh, as many assets as we could to reduce our debt so that a family of five would be able to kind of sustain itself and live on study and Sandy's part-time wage for the next four years. And part of that meant Sandy went from driving around in this midnight black kind of V8 uh, Ford Explorer lever interior, real FBI setup, sounded sweet as it was leaving the car park. And then she moved into what I describe as a kind of army green soccer mum uh, Ford station wagon. She didn't bat an eyelid, but I wept a little. And I had to part with my 75 series Land Cruiser which was basically an extension of myself. Uh, It was set up for bricklaying and it was set up for hunting. It pretty much represented all the idols of my heart. And I ended up in Sandy's dad's old, pretty much his paddock basher that he parked up beside his shed, this poxy 1.8 litre two-wheel drive Hilux, uh, which was white where the rust didn't exist. It eventually died and then I kind of rolled around in this green Toyota hatchback. I wept a lot more over that. It was the kind of grief that Jesus had at the tomb of Lazarus. It was deep. But, uh, <laughs> oh, 
You see, I need this sermon more than you. But we walked away, in a way, from the security that came from our ability to, to work, to provide for ourselves, to dependency on God's call. A total change of trajectory, a total change of where our confidence and security lay, which is pretty much what the Christian life is. This is just a smaller story inside a much larger, much bigger one. So if you're a Christian, if you're sitting here, I know, you all know what trajectory change feels like. You know what it feels like to have all your priorities shift, to, to then go and place your trust in something other than yourself, in something other than your own ability to amass wealth and comfort and priorities, just like these disciples had done now sounds dramatic doesn't it sounds dramatic what we did but trust me we are not the heroes of this story uh, because of what Jesus is warning these disciples about I have actually walked through while it was challenging at first it wasn't worrying there was no conflict in my heart uh, <clears throat> there was just this wonderful sense of adventure and expectation uh, that overmastered any kind of concern uh, or, or, or over security around the loss of stuff. We still had plenty, like we still own a home and we had plenty of stuff. But as time marched on and we became more financially vulnerable and dependent on others, my peers, my friends, my family, you know, people around me became more financially stable, became more financially independent. And it was then that I began to feel the anxiety that Jesus is talking about here. I went from being someone who had the capacity to use their resources for others to somebody who at times needed the resources of others. And it would hijack my thinking. It would consume my energy and, 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 and my planning. How will I be sure that this family of five has everything that it wants? We'll, we'll, we'll be okay. Now, it's not unreasonable, it's even sensible that you shouldn't be reckless and shouldn't be thoughtless, that you should make plans. You need a level of responsibility. But when responsibility shifts to anxiety, it reveals, as Jesus points out down in verse 28, that you need to get some balance back in where your faith has been placed and where your faith has perhaps drifted to, gone to. You need to have your heart reminded and refueled with who God is and his care for you and what he's planned for you and what he's done for you and for us in the person of Jesus. Now, these disciples, they're on an even more kind of dramatic, even more epic beginning uh, to any Christian life than anyone can imagine. They walked and witnessed the whole story of Jesus from his introduction, you know, and his baptism, look, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They were there when those words were spoken. They heard the story from that point forward. They saw the Spirit come and descend on the life of Jesus. They were, they were there with his teachings and his, and his miracles and all the stuff that he did. They were, they were there with uh, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, like they actually saw angels turn up and say, don't panic, lads, he's coming back. Pretty epic story, start to their Christian life. And yet, just like you and I, because their hearts, while transformed, 
by the witness and work of the Holy Spirit to become the kind of people who would seek after uh, God's glory and live out his design and plan and seeking first the kingdom of God as Jesus has said in this passage, but because their hearts are still prone to sin and still prone uh, to, to, to anxieties and, and disordered loves, still a work in progress, Jesus knows he's got to turn and talk to them. Jesus knows he's got to turn and talk to you and I. We get a beautiful picture of what it will be one day in Revelation, you know, when heaven comes down and meets earth and the two are together and we see that conflict is no longer at play. Sin no longer assaults creation and we will live with God and with each other and creation perfectly. There's peace, not conflict. The heart is fully restored. But until then, we wrestle with disordered priorities. And Jesus knows our hearts and he knows the hearts of his disciples. He's spoken about how greed distorts the heart into thinking anxiously that it can't get enough. That's what we saw last week. Now he's speaking about anxiety is the distortion of a heart to believe that you won't have enough. Greed is a danger to those who have wealth. It creates anxiety and disordered perspectives and trusts. But the same anxiety is a danger to those who don't have wealth, who don't have as much as what others have. The word that Jesus uses in verse 22 and 25 that our, that our Bibles translates as anxiety, if you're reading the ESV or worry, uh, if you're reading the NIV, is better in a phrase. And it means to be, to be kind of torn apart, to be pulled in two different directions, to be doubtful of mind and to experience conflict in your priorities and your pursuits. That's the word picture that's going on here. So is what we need to be also a little mindful of as we approach this. Jesus is not making a medical diagnosis on, on conditions of anxieties that relate to mental health disorders. These anxieties are not merely connected to your faith. They are literally due to biological factors. And we have you know, available to us incredible uh, medical support and developments and resources for this. And that's not lacking faith. That's just being grateful for common grace. Like That's just simple, basic theology that people who are created in the image of God are capable of having the same kind of capacities as God to learn, to understand, uh, to, to diagnose, and then to work out how to deal with and care for. It's, an, it's like a visual aid to tell us that if we can do this, imagine what God can do for us. Jesus, again, is talking about, though, here, disordered priorities that cause you to have divided loyalties, misplaced confidence that will lead to over-anxiety, having you focus and obsessing on things that are out of your control. Corey Tamboon says, Worry does not empty today of its sorrow. It merely, uh, sorry, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It merely empties today of its strength. And that's Corey's, she's literally rewording Matthew 6. We need to be careful when discussing the relationship of sin and anxiety. Here Jesus says anxiety as a general consequence of sin's presence is aggravated by the disordered loves and the seeking of possessions as life's main goal and highest priority. And something that is all on us to achieve and secure. And while in general, I think that a faith in God 
the message of the gospel can be saving grace, can act like a warm blanket to the soul of someone who has you know, some form of clinical you know, environmental anxiety. To always condemn anxiety or depression as resulting from the absence or the lack of faith is cruel and it's unbiblical. Like where would that leave the psalmists? Where would it leave David whose psalm we read this morning? Where would it leave Elijah? Where would it leave Moses? Where would it leave Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? What about the disciples on Saturday? Great preachers like Charles Spurgeon. People who say anxiety is always a direct result of not having faith just kind of need a swift punch in the throat, I think, sometimes. And then we'll have a little talk about how much faith is needed to reconstruct a windpipe, that kind of thing. Like, let's be consistent. But Jesus, unlike some of our denominational friends, is very aware that following him means struggling, means poverty, means going without. And that brings anxiety. And the great danger here is that the absence, that in the absence of self-generated you know, wealth, comfort and security, that that anxiety would get off the chain. The disciples' hearts, your heart, my heart, gets torn apart, divided in focus and function. And Jesus is pastoral here. He's not purely punitive. That's his way with people. And so he talks. He talks to the boys. Huddle up, lads. Let's go. And the call is not to total aestheticism, but a life lived with an eye on God, an approach of heart towards God as the one who meets our needs because we understand God. We know his character. We've spent enough time with him to know that he is not merely able to meet our needs, but it is his good pleasure to do so. Jesus brings balance back to our hearts by appealing to the order of creation. One of his favorite things to do. We've seen him doing this a bit lately through this passage. And I'd do it too if I'd made the universe. But I'm more like, hey, check out my brickwork or my attempt at this sermon. He's like, yeah, check out my raven and my flowers. And it's like, yeah, overachiever. But Jesus says, I didn't say that. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse or barn. Yet God feeds them. Of how much more value, this is the order of creation, are you than birds? In the order of creation, ravens and birds do not have a heavenly father, a description of a relationship with God that doesn't appear until down in verse 32. Birds just have a creator. The relationship is, not, is one of function, not family. They simply exist and point to the glory of God and enjoy his care, but not as the image bearer does, experiencing it, knowing it, responding to it, living it out. Read through Isaiah 40 to 43. You get this mad, beautiful picture of the relationship of God and creation, and then he turns to his relationship with his people. Nevertheless, as we who are created in the image of God to be in relationship with God, do begin to feel anxiety about whether or not God is good for all we need, should consider the raven. Now, I don't know about you, when I don't actually, but when you think of a raven or a crow, same little family, I think, you might think lovely, rich, black bird. I don't. And neither did Jew, the Jewish audience that was listening to Jesus. Ravens under Old Testament law were ceremonially unclean. 
because they ate dead and dying and decaying carrion. They ate dead and de- meat and, and things that were lying around, made them unclean. So the law said, don't be putting no raven on your barbecue and eat that. It's an unclean bird. It's a detestable animal. You read about that in Leviticus 11. Growing up on farming country in Ben Valley, which is like a satellite suburb of Yakandanda, we learned to detest crows and ravens as well, but not because of Leviticus, because these birds would turn up and peck the eyes out of newborn sheep when they're, when they're mums. Yeah, that's why we hated them. Yeah, that's why we dispatched them back to their creator with great joy. <laughs> but, but even for these unloved and unclean birds, God graciously provides everything they need. Like you hate and you despise these birds, but God cares for that bird. So consider that. In Psalm 114, which someone who will remain nameless, but they're married to Mark Oliver. So you work it out. They text me this psalm after Carlton lost on Sunday. Appreciate the pastoral care. <laughs> Yet in the psalm, the psalmist uses God's care of creation as a character reference. A character reference for his ability to heal the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds. That's funny. <laughs> but it's serious. The psalmist says God even cares in this psalm for the young ravens who cry out, little raven, you want to push him out of the nest, but he cares for them. If he designed and organized all of creation to take care of them, how much more mindful is he of you? How much more of his care is dialed in to you? Filling your soul, filling our thinking with the character of God and his goodness, his care, is how you temper anxiety how you get it back on the chain no fear no anxiety it just magically disappears it needs an overmastering reality and jesus and the psalmist are saying that's the character of god god's care for this despised raven is oddly enough uh, is used as a visual aid by jesus by the psalmist that leads us to god's care anxiety can blind us to the world around us and the way that God cares for his creation. But it's a short-sighted approach to life. It deceives us into thinking that, that, that all there is to life is, is food and clothing, the pursuits of our hands. And in the absence of these things, then that must mean that is the absence of God's care. Not true, says Jesus. Consider the raven. Anxiety is also deceptive in that it becomes an activity through which we feel we're accomplishing something, we're doing something. We feel like we actually have the power to change things through uh, this behavior. To Jesus, Jesus now moves from, to make a point about this, he moves from a parable to a very pragmatic statement. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Anxiety grows out of the idea that you are in ultimate control. Jesus reminds his listeners, his disciples here, he reminds you and I by extension, that we are not in ultimate control by asking them if they are able to influence something that he thinks is quite a small problem, is quite a small thing to do. Like, 
how long you live. Can you influence how long you're going to live? Or, or maybe how tall you'll grow. Like there's a bit of ambiguity about the translation. Is it about length of life or is it about stature, height, this kind of stuff? I imagine that after creating the universe, these things are small to Jesus, but they are quite impossible to us. Jesus' point here is that people are limited. God is not. Worrying about things that are out of our control is pointless. Trust in God who has no limits of resources. Far from adding anything to our lives, worry and anxiety always subtracts. Worry is a thief. It steals time, steals energy. And our thoughts turn into troubles. And this is where we become torn apart. This is where we become divided uh, rather than focusing and being comforted by the character of God. As the old hymn based loosely on Philippians 4.16 goes, why worry when you can pray? Why worry when you can turn to the character and the goodness of God? Simplistic, but true. Not sure why Peter gets a clip in that song, but I didn't write it. Jesus turns to uh, visual aid number two. Verse 27 there, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is just thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Again, using the order of creation, Jesus speaks. The limited lifespan of flowers is contrast against the eternal future in front of the disciples, in front of people. If God meticulously provides and cares for flowers, clothing them, how much more people, people who he is going to spend eternity with. God's plan is to clothe you with the righteousness of Christ, to robe you in the identity of the Son so that you might identify with him. And well, that's another sermon, but if something so fleeting and temporary as grass is cared for by God, Again, how much more will God be mindful of the needs of his people who despite the fact that they can't add any time to their lives will live significantly longer lives? Jesus is using the visual aids of creation to get us to turn our hearts and our minds to the unlimited resources of God to care for his creation and by extension to care for you and I. As soon as we feel anxiety creeping in, to our approach to life, it's time to reorder the focus of our hearts back onto the character of God. Jesus makes the point to his disciples that the problem is not uh, God's little power. The problem lies in their little faith. And here is the tension statement uh, of the verse. Worry indeed is a symptom of our sinful hearts that shrinks God and exaggerates problems. But worry and anxiety is not evidence of not having faith. It's probably more evidential that your faith has been diluted, watered down, lost its strength, being partnered with other sources of reliance and confidence. Faith needs to be exercised, it needs to be strengthened, it needs to be encouraged to deepen it, it needs to be reprioritized back to the right object, God himself. Nurturing your faith, cultivating your faith, not condemning it is the solution 
Too often we self-loathe when what we really need to do is enlarge our understanding and our experience of God. We do that by meditating on his word. We, we have so much access to the word of God. It's ridiculous. We can go there any time of day or night. You've got, a, you've got an iPhone that can give you every translation of the Bible ever written. Meditate, study, prayer. What we really need is to share our struggles with each other as well. Like we need fellowship. We need each other in this story to help our hearts when they're anxious. Why you should be in a small group. Why you need to come to church. This anxiety, this being torn apart in priority and pursuit is healed primarily here by seeking after the character of God, by understanding God more and more and fueling your heart and your thoughts and your minds with him and his design for life. Now, I'm going to pull up here. There's a whole second part to this, but we were going to be here till Wednesday. I think we need kind of like a part two of the rest of this passage uh, where seeking after the character of God helps us to live this life of contrast to the world, a world that lives a restless life and knows no peace. Pursuing the character of God brings peace. And then we see in the last little passage there that that peace is evidenced by our capacity to be generous, to give away our resources, to live the heart of God into the world where we are releasing our resources uh, for the needy, not for our own interest, interest, but the interests of others. But I'll finish with a word from Paul out of Romans 8.32. He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up uh, for us all, how will he not also, along with him, along with giving us Jesus and all the promises that are attached to him that become realities in our lives, along with all of that, how much more will he graciously give us all things? The, the extent of God's care and concern for you is seen in Jesus, who God knew was the only way to heal our conflict deal with our sins, bring us into relationship with him, uh, to his character that would bring peace to us. If God is willing to share himself with us, if God is willing to tear himself apart in order to put us back together again, to bring you into relationship with him, to make you heirs of all that he has, that's what it's talking about later on in the passage, to, that you would receive the kingdom of God. How much more? How much more will he supply the needs that you need to live a life as he has designed us to live? That our hearts can be warm with affection for him, pursue his plans with a confidence that tempers anxiety, a faith that is singular, not diluted in the object of security of God our Father. Let's pray. I mean, God how good you are to us, that you give us your word to us, recorded. We have the Bible, your word, but you give us Jesus, uh, your character in the flesh, um, to reveal to us your love and your care for us. How good you are that you give us your spirit to 
to make these truths, these historical claims, real to us. Our prayer this morning is that as we wrestle with these passages, as we look into this historic um, narrative Jesus of Jesus, that the Spirit would be um, nurturing our hearts with its truth, warming our hearts with affection for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.